watchers in the fourth dimension. Why can't you wear inconspicuous clothes like I do? Your humble servant, Dr. Caligari. Dr. Who? <laughs> yes, you're quite right. He gave me a gun, he extracted my tooth, but gracious me, what more do you want? Come along, boy, come along, come along. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And the day I can't walk down Main Street in any city in the West on account it ain't safe, then I'll be dead. Wow, that was almost as good as some of the accents in this story. <laughs> this week, we are discussing Riley's absolute favourite story of the Hartnell era, The Gunfighters. Like the celestial toy maker before it, this story was originally commissioned by previous producer John Wiles and previous story editor Donald Tosh, who had immensely enjoyed working with writer Donald Cotton on The Myth Makers. Indeed, they even allegedly said that it was their best experience on the show. So naturally, they gave him another commission for another humorous take on a historical story. This time, we're off to the Wild West. With that background, Cotton was somewhat dismayed with the regime change, given that both the new producer Innes Lloyd and the new script editor Jerry Davis were very vocal about their dislike for the entire historical genre. They became more convinced of this after this story was broadcast, as it received the worst audience appreciation scores for the show to date. If you didn't mention that, I was going to. <laughs> so with this one in the director's seat, we have Rex Tucker. This was his first and only credited role on the show, but it wasn't his only involvement. He had been the acting producer during the show's genesis until Sidney Newman picked Verity Lambert for the role on a permanent basis. With this particular story, Tucker, once he got the scripts, was quite concerned about the quality and tried to figure out how to play this. And eventually, on the advice of Lloyd and Davis, he played up the farcical elements of the story. For those of you who loved the song, you'll also be happy to know that it was Tucker who decided to centralise the role of the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon, elevating it from what had originally been designed as just a mood piece to being a major narrative device. That song was written by series veteran Tristan Carey, whose most recent compositions for the show had come in the Daleks' master plan. The song was for the most part sung off-screen by a lady called Linda Barron, who we'll actually see acting on-screen much later in the show in both season 20's Enlightenment and series 6's Closing Time. Then in the designer seat, we have the return of Barry Newbury, whose work we last saw in the arc, and he'll be back, of course, but not until season 6, so it's the last we see of him for a while. With that, we're on to our short summary, which this time around is with Julie. So fill up your glass and join in the song. The cereal seems so gosh darn long. So come you coyotes and hope it's over soon. Else my ears shall have bled out because of the last chance saloon. Basically, if you've seen Tombstone, it's like that, but with the doctor. Love it. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. And dear listener, she wrote that in about five minutes before we started recording, so... Ladies and gentlemen, our very own Julie. That moves us into the, our discussion on the first episode, A Holiday for the Doctor, and we once again pick up where we left off with the Doctor and his friends going somewhere with the Doctor having a toothache. Yeah, I was a little confused about this because at the end of the last serial, I thought he had gotten like actually sick or something, but no, it was just like, I have a bad tooth. Yeah, you thought it was the... The act of the, like a poison by the dreaded schoolboy that uh, did him in, but no, just his already poor dental health. Hard candy from the toy maker. I have to say, I do really enjoy the pun they use for this title. A holiday for the doctor? Yes. Yeah, yes. I do like it. 
let's get the the big thing out of the way first. The song. <sighs> the song. I enjoyed it. I it it seemed a little weird at first, but I just got used to it and found it to be an interesting framing device. I think I, what I would have enjoyed a little bit more is I enjoyed the song, but if they had also included some of like the bar piano music in the background, it would have been a little bit better because they basically had no music except when that song was playing. And I'm like, you could have had some like instrumental stuff going on there, but I liked it as a framing device. In my weird headcanon, I pictured her just off screen actually singing it while the terrible events were happening. And people yes. looking at her like, lady, somebody just died. Show some respect. And she just keeps on singing. I I love that. That's that's a wonderful headcanon, I mean, John. It reminds me of those old, like, the you know, you had Cat Blue and Paint Your Wagon, which were those old westerns that also had a lot of music in them. Kind of what it reminded me of. I think the song itself as a composition is not terrible. I think that my issue with it is just the uh, overuse of it. I uh, actually, this time watching the serial, because uh, I felt the same way when I watched it the first time many years ago, uh, I actually did a count of how many times the song played per episode. Um, since we were on the first episode, I would like to mention that the song played nine times in a 24-minute episode. So doing a little math there, you can see that we're under hearing that song about every three minutes. To be fair, it's a different verse every time. True, true, but... um, I mean, if you don't like the way the song goes, that's not going to change anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... I actually thought it it worked as a framing device. I went into this with a degree of trepidation about the song, and, you know, this has been eight and a half to nine years since I last saw this. My memory of it was not a particularly positive one. And I thought as a framing device, it, it worked fairly well. I, I didn't hate it at all. I know there's, that Riley has previously expressed his... <laughs> I mean, I guess there's not much more to say, but like, well, I was trying to think of, have I, can I think of examples of any sort of film or television where there was a kind of song that was constantly reused as a framing device or just as like a narrative device and and the only one i can think of that i that i enjoyed was the rankin and bass hobbit that had like a kind of folk song kind of music throughout that like served as a narrative purpose that i enjoyed with yarborough yes yeah yeah i think my issue with this is that the plot really is just a lot of just kind of waiting around until we can have our gunfight in the fourth episode not much happens it's a, which is a shame because there's a lot of potential because actually I think the first episode and the second episode are the are the strongest of the serial and that's because the thing that I the thing that I pulled away this time that I really really enjoyed I wish they leaned in more on it uh, in the serial was William Hartnell's comedic performance of being like the, you know the mistaken identity person it was great it was I wish they could have just leaned on that for the entire time and. It would have been a lot better, but then just around maybe the third episode or fourth episode, they start drifting away. Once they put him into the jail cell, it falls away from that. So even before there's the mistaken identity, Hartnell's comedy beats are phenomenal. You know, he he describes himself, he calls himself Dr. Cagliari and someone says, Dr. Who? And he goes, yes, quite right. (laughs) His acting kind of as being quite jumpy around Doc Holliday and his lady because they're being loud and they're being very unprofessional. And the situational comedy was actually quite funny. 
in my opinion. Watching the first time, I didn't enjoy any of it. Going in it with a positive point of view, this time to try to pull something out of it, that is what I felt was the strongest thing about the entire serial. Especially the, I'm, I'm jumping around here, but the scene where he and Kate are like, you know, have everyone like all of them held off at the bar and then you can see like the like the doctor trying to act like cool and under control with a gun in his hand but he obviously is like just you know just running with rolling with the punches and he doesn't know really what's how to handle it that that was really funny the other thing i want to touch on well two other things the first one is the sets yeah sets are great they yeah. look like a big professional western studio bound i, I really kind of wonder if they called over <laughs> Because there were so many westerns in TV in the United States at the time, if they called over for any advice, like how do you how do you throw up a western town real quick on a studio? It was very much like they sort of got an access to the gun smoke set or something, and just said, "Hey, let's <laughs> yeah, do an exactly. episode here." <laughs> so I believe they had some some pictures and some plans, but I don't think they had anyone advising them on it. I think that's even more impressive. Yeah, and I think westerns, were they starting to get popular in Europe at the time? Yeah. Because I know like the spaghetti western, it's right before, it's before the spaghetti westerns, but it's not that long before. I think the spaghetti westerns had just started to appear. But kind yeah. of best of the Western TV shows would make it over to the UK. I, I'm trying to remember the name of the really big one. I think it was Laramie was the one that really made it over. And certainly by the time I was growing up, I remember being off sick from school and kind of middle of the day repeats on Channel 4. We would see a lot of Rawhide. <laughs> yeah. Those, I think, were the, the big two. So I would think even depending on who they were able to get, there would be people in Europe who would have some background, I think, in Westerns. And even then, from a set perspective, I don't think they were really that difficult. So yeah, I do agree with that, that it did look really, really good. Um, and one thing about the set in particular that I really liked was the giant tooth that Holiday had <laughs> for his shop was phenomenal. Yes. Speaking of one thing that struck me about Holiday and the the dentist scene with him and the doctor was that I was putting myself in the doctor's perspective and I was like, this has to be absolutely terrifying. I mean, imagine being as technical technologically advanced as the doctor, and then because of happenstance, you have to resort to 19th century dentistry to, to help you <laughs> get help. That sounds terrifying it, to me. It was terrifying. If I'd been the doctor, I would have just jumped in the TARDIS and been like, you know what, let's try this again. Yeah, odds are, odds are, I'm going to end up being somewhere a lot better, a lot better healthcare somewhere else. Oh, but then we wouldn't have gotten Stephen in his frilly shirt. <laughs> you, you mean Stephen Regret? Yes. <laughs> He's trying to be like Ian, but does not look as good. I love how that sounds like a punk rock last name. Stephen Regret. <laughs> yeah. It does, it does. Stephen regrets wearing that yeah. shirt. So speaking of which, the accents. Oh. I, I marked down that Snake Eye, Snake Eye, he was actually pretty decent. And Kate was okay. Everyone else, some of them ranged from unacceptable to outright hilarious. I've actually got <laughs> a thing for this, because at first, they really bothered me. And I couldn't quite figure out why, because everywhere we go in the universe, everyone speaks with a, with a British accent. So why did it bother me here? I think it's because it's it's not just that the Doctor's going to the American West. The show is actually entering into an American Western where I'm really used to the certain type of accents and certain certain people were, were trying uh, the, the barkeep and 
and and Kate especially she had that whole Miss Kitty thing going on but then you had other people who just just weren't trying at all they were just talking like their normal selves so it was a little little off-putting for me the ones who if they just had it where no one was trying and they just all played it with an English accent I think it would have been a lot less jarring but Rex Tucker insisted on having North Americans, whether they were American or Canadian, in as many roles as possible. <laughs> like, you mentioned the barkeep, Don. I kept picking up on, like, a slight Canadian twang to his accent, which yeah. feels so out of place in, where is Tombstone, Arizona? Yes. Like, so out of place. You know, the funny thing is, I mean, during that time in history, it was people traveling to a new place. So it's not completely out of the question that you would have people with Canadian accents or British accents or whatever. I think we're just so used to a certain type of accent in any type of American Western that it's it's off-putting. That's just my thoughts. I was just going to say, I love how you guys were all like, it was off-putting and all this other stuff. I was like, I just took it as everyone was way, way over the top. And I was just like, well, this is hilarious and moved on. Like I, I didn't, it didn't bother me because I've also seen some other Westerns or, you know, the parodies on Westerns where everyone is over the top. So I was just like, all right, this is just how we're doing it. And I was okay with it. The other question I have for you guys, since we all live in the fair state of Georgia in the American South, all three of you are originally, you know, were, were born and raised in the South. Doc Holliday has a line that he's from Georgia Yeah, in there. How's his accent? Not right, but yeah. not terrible. <laughs> not uh, Georgian, but I really liked the actor. Yeah, the actor, yeah. the performance was good. The accent was meh. I mean, he was chewing up the scenery th all through. He was wonderful. He was so good. Before we move on to the next episode, we touched on Stephen, and as Stephen regrets, and the doctor is Dr. Cagliari, and we have Dodo as, what was it, Dodo Dupont? Yes. Originally, and I don't know if this would surprise you guys, so at, at the end of the episode we get into where they're forced to, to play and sing by the Clantons. And surprise, surprise, they play and sing The Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon. See, if they had just paid attention to the lyrics, they could have avoided all this trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, the two roles were meant to be switched, so Stephen was meant to be playing the keys and Dodo was meant to be singing. And as they got into rehearsals, they found that Jackie Lane uh, did not have a particularly good singing voice. <laughs> and that's allegedly understating it. I think one, one thing I read on it described her as tone deaf. <laughs> to be fair, I'm just proud that they were able to passively play and sing. I mean, she wasn't really playing either. Right. I, I still, I really liked that whole idea because i mean usually there's a lot of situations where they're lying and pretending to be other people and in this serial their bluff was called and they had to perform yeah that was a nice twist on it because they could have played it off in the episode itself that they couldn't play so it's still impressive in and of itself that they were like you know what no we're gonna actually make them able to do this and the complete opposite to, you know, back in, in the Romans where the doctor's bluff was called <laughs> on that. <laughs> he just, he still finds a bluff that fools everyone into thinking that he's playing. Different take, but same idea. All right, so that takes us into episode two, Don't Shoot the Pianist. At this point, the Clantons already think that the Doctor is Doc Holliday. Sorry to interrupt, but I'd also like to point out that as we go into this episode, uh, when Stephen and Dodo are singing and playing that song, again, they request him to sing it and her to play it a third time. 
And even Steven mentions how irritated he is of like, come on, we've already played the song enough. I wonder if that's the show being a little meta there. Could be. I do I do love the 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 comment on that of reasonably accomplished, you might say, but not great. <laughs> <laughs> Although to be fair, they can pass by with the singing and dancing, but the, the other folks cannot clap in time. <laughs> As a musician, that is one of my pet peeves is when you're playing songs and people are trying to clap along to it and it just it deteriorates very quickly. So the question I have is you have the Clantons thinking that the doctor is Doc Holiday. How do they not realize as soon as he speaks that this this guy's clearly an Englishman? Because they're going after revenge for somebody that they don't know what they look like or sound like, but they know how he dresses. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That said, we do get the Doctor in a great hat, yes. carrying on with, you know, the wonderful hats he's been wearing this season. And, you know, he's predating Matt Smith wearing a Stetson by about 50 years. I think that's pretty cool. He looks good. That's one thing, you re- when you're talking about the sets, that's another thing. The costumes are, are good. Yes. Even Steven's frilly shirt. That was for a purpose. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's better than that corduroy jacket thing that he was wearing during the Daleks. Yeah, that was questionable for sure. One of the things I didn't like, so once the doctor gets arrested and is in jail, there's this one particular shot when he's just like sitting so dejectedly in the jail. And I was just, to me, that's not very doctor-like to just look so dejected. And I get that he had just had the tooth removed and some things like that, but still, it was just, it was very sad. But the doctor in the jail cell does provide what I think was uh, one of the funnier lines in the entire serial. Um, Later on in the episode, he uh, mentions to the sheriff, people keep giving me guns and I do wish that they wouldn't. (laughs) And all I could think of, and I was like, you know what? Welcome to America, doctor. And through all of that, he's calling Wyatt up. He insists on calling him Mr. Werp, which I thought was amazing. So before he even ends up in the jail cell, there's the bar scene where, you know, he's about to get in the bar fight. And I assumed that the doctor accidentally shot one of the Clantons until Mm -hmm. it was made clear that it was Doc Holliday from, you know, the staircase. But I was like, damn, doctor, what's going on? Doc Holliday on the staircase with the revolver. (laughs) <laughs> and he and he does it again later i think either this episode or the very next one i mean that, watch that, we start getting to a point in the second and third episodes where in between dialogue scenes we just ha- suddenly have doc holiday like kind of go halfway down the stairs shoot somebody and then go right back up <laughs> it's all he's good for an element of this episode that i thought wasn't particularly well written was when you first see up and holiday talking to each other and it's just a giant exposition scene you know you've got up telling him what the clantons are up to what the plan is to stop them all that kind of stuff and it that just narratively didn't work for me i don't know how i would have done it because i'm not a professional writer i mean that's the difficulty of dealing with a historical subject matter of like one particular event and you know they have to give all this backstory to explain why we're having a gunfight two episodes later between these two groups of people which is funny because it's not like they were in any way historically accurate (laughs) true true yeah and i get frustrated sometimes when there's people say well it's really hard to do and blah 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 and i'm like outlander does a very excellent job of fitting 
historical events into the show, but what they do is they take the characters of the show and remove them a couple degrees from the main plot. So while actions are happening that are historical, they're not necessarily directly involved, and that is the better way to do a story that's set in some sort of historical event. I'm glad you brought that up, because that's always been my concern about Doctor Who historical episodes. If you put them too close to the main players, then it's like, well, a lot of the suspense is gone because you know what's going to happen or it has to happen that way. The other thing, which is I think even worse, is that if you get them still close with the players, but still remove them by only maybe like one degree, you get something really like cheesy and, and, and cliched like, and his name was Albert Einstein. Yeah, you get the whole, oh, look, famous cameo thing going on. Yeah, and that's just, that is just terrible. It's, I, I agree, Outlander does it a lot better. D- yeah. d- handles it very well. And then, of course, you have the third option, which is where you set it in an era of history that no one's really that familiar with, and you get the massacre. <laughs> True. Yeah. You run the risk of no one actually really caring. See, I wonder how this episode, like, it, you know, the show from its beginnings, uh, talking about wanting to be educational, and I, I'm, I'm trying to, other than like just a depiction of a day in the life of what it was like in the Wild West in America... I'm trying to think of any historical significance, really. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from a bias. I really am not a fan of westerns. There's very few westerns that I actually like, and I find the story of the OK, the shootout, the OK Corral, to be completely insignificant. And I don't understand why people find it so interesting. It just seems kind of like just what it is—just a shootout between you know some outlaws and the law. So I don't understand its importance. So I'm kind of wondering if there was ever any criticism of this particular episode of like. Well, you say you want to be a show that's educational, but really you're just trying to give an excuse to, you know, do a, you know, a shoot 'em up western that was popular at the time. I think they'd given up on being educational by this yeah. point in time. I was going to say that. Okay. So, therefore, I think that they were really just trying to go with the spectacle and a lot of people are familiar with the OK Corral. So, what better thing to do than do the OK Corral if we're going to try to attempt a western? Yeah, I mean, you've got to hit the the famous bits otherwise yeah. it's just some random town and yeah you end up with a town called mercy in yeah. the matt smith era where hey i like that one <laughs> at least it added something new to it i mean i know that that was one of the criticisms of this serial was that it seems to be just told very straightforward and there's no added element to it and because of the doctor having to deal with the mistaken identity issue there's no there's no s- s- step back from the characters to talk about like maybe the the morality of having a gunfight at all. It just seems like we're just careening towards this and we're going to have it no matter what and no reason to really think about it. Well, it's because it's the big thing. It's you're you're moving up toward the shootout at the OK Corral. It's not the skirmish in Turd Falls, Texas. I mean, you, you've got to have it. It's, ex- it's expected. Well, yeah, I'm fine with it happening. I'm just saying, like, could we, like, maybe have a discussion about the reason of, you know, resorting to violence in the streets? Or something. I don't know. Just something to add a little bit more depth to the episode. Which, like I said, I'm only asking that because in the first two episodes, we have really great kind of humor and comedy. And then it just, once Johnny Ringo shows up in the third episode, then it just kind of just drifts away. And I'm kind of wondering, what are we doing here? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Riley, in that education and and morality is not the point of this story. This is just designed to be pure entertainment either as you know a a comedy western or as you know introducing the mr nasty for want of a better term in johnny ringo 
I, I don't think this was ever even contemplated being an educational story in any way, shape, or form. It does share, I mean, this was the same writer that did the Myth Makers, right? Yep. So we also have that same sudden tonal shift. So our first two episodes are really comedy-focused. And then in the third episode, we get Johnny Ringo showing up and shooting the barman. Suddenly things get real, so to speak. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's a fairly good segue into episode three, Johnny Ringo. We end episode two with whether or not Wyatt, Her Wyatt Earp, <laughs> Mr. Werp, is going to hand the Doctor over to the mob. And uh, we pick back up with the Doctor not quite sure whether to what to do, because you've got him not wanting to see Stephen get hanged, but Mr. Werp is not letting him out. Uh, by the way, the song cue count for episode two was seven. So we're at a total of 16. Thank you. That Johnny Ringo guy, huh? Not a nice character. What a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and his accent's terrible. Yes. Yeah. Really. I mean, he's very English with the very slightest twang. And he, I mean, the actor's just not trying. I mean, I enjoyed him. He was very, he was very stereotypical. He was very much the, I'm the, the terrible guy who everyone is afraid of, and I'm going to defeat so-and-so because of X, Y, Z. Like, it's very, he's a very straightforward character, which I don't hate. I, I occasionally want the straightforward character, so we know what Ringo wants. I, I also think the, the, the reason why the character is brought into the serial is to give a heroic moment to Doc Holliday. To clear up any perhaps ambiguity about whose side we should be on, because at the beginning, you know, Doc Holliday is the person that you know kind of sends the doctor up the river by you know sending him out there as a Doc Holliday lookalike, so to speak. And so now we provide like a true like evil character for him to like you know contrast against, and we see like, oh, okay, Doc Holliday, he's on our side. I have my notes uh, from watching this episode. Uh, nobody likes Ringo, professional asshole. <laughs> I mean, just because he's not your favorite Beatle, there's no reason to say that. That's just rude. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. There is a part where, like, they're like, everyone is like, Ringo, 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 and it just reminded me of Help when they're all yelling about where Ringo is, <laughs> um, which is an excellent movie. Um, yes, it but, is. But back to that, where not only did they bring him in to kind of juxtapose against, you know, like he has to be against Holiday. It also helps that he's part of that original story, so he has to be a part of the Yokoi Corral shooting because he was there. Yeah, he didn't die there, though. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they they got that wrong. They got a lot of that wrong, actually. Like that ended up. I was sitting there, I was like, all the people who should be dying are not dying, but okay, that's <laughs> people fine. that did die there weren't there. Yeah, it's all fine. I keep thinking about the the economy of like coming into town and shooting the barman. Wasn't I, I? I'm just you know guessing here. Aren't the barmen in these small like western towns usually also the owners of the establishment? Usually. Or is there just like a, a line of barmen that keep coming through as they keep getting shot by horrible outlaws? Well, plus, the only people we saw in these town were outlaws. We didn't ha really have except for the mob, which even then we didn't have a whole lot of just normal people. That's it. So there was that when we first meet the barman in in the first episode, you kind of see him, you know, rising up from behind the bar, almost like he's doing that kind of elevator trick. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they just have a line of barman behind there. You know, you, you knock one down, and the next one just kind of rises. 
I did really enjoy that there was a sign in the bar right behind him that said, no shooting in this bar. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm I mean, prepared for this. There's a sign. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys, read the sign. Famous last words. Sign, sign everywhere. Anyway, so I think one of the things to think about is the way that they would explain it off is that... Uh, the town folks knew that there were outlaws in town and that they just avoided them at all costs, which eh, is a cop out, but that's how you could explain it away. Extras are expensive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When Ringo killed Charlie the barman, I mean, I it, it was really just to show how mean he was. I mean, it was nothing beyond kind of setting the scene that this guy, as Dom put it, is an absolute bastard. Absolutely. And he, of course, was trying to remain remain hidden, and as soon as they found the body, like, Johnny Ringo must have done this. <laughs> <sighs> Way to keep it low-key, yep. buddy. <laughs> was anyone else kind of hoping at one moment they would, like, break off in, like, maybe, like, the third episode when they find themselves at a point where they don't know where to go or what to do? They just say, wait a second. And then the music kicks in, and they kind of go, wait, listen to what she's saying. Okay, they're over there. See? Right off screen, comedy, and dangerous. <laughs> to talk about some of the other characters, we had that wonderful moment where Dodo proves to be momentarily a secret badass. Good. Threatening Holiday with that gun. Momentarily is the key word there. Threatening competence. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, momentarily, because as soon as Holiday pulls out another gun, she faints. Uh, like, I would have so much preferred if they had kept her with that backbone of, I need to get out of here, and she just stayed with it. I'm really, really sad that they made her faint. Really upset. I mean, she's from 1960s London, no one's seen a gun. But Barbara would not have fainted. No, but that's because Barbara is a goddess. One of the things that I actually liked, and it's very, very minor, but when Steven and Ringo get to that one saloon and they're standing outside and Ringo tells him to go back and Ringo kind of turns and he's like in half shadow. I thought the lighting was really, really well done when it's showing him like looking uh, uh, at what's her, at what her, what's her name? Kate? Uh, Kate, yes. Kate. Kate. So I really liked how they did some of the lighting for for him, but that was just something I noticed. I also really liked the shot. I think it was in the first episode, maybe the second, where the doctor is just walking down the street and he's clutching his mouth. Yes. He looks so dejected. It's unusual to see him with, you know, such vulnerability. Hey, toothaches are no laughing matter. They are not. Speaking of Kate, love her performance through the entire story. I for me, she is a huge winner. Absolutely. I agree completely. And finally, before we move on to the final episode, I do want to touch on a plot point, and that is the Clantons killing Earp's younger brother. Yes. I don't know what possessed Wyatt Earp to put someone who was so obviously incompetent in charge of the jail, but had to have him killed somehow. Yeah, it's really difficult because Wyatt Earp, from the get-go, seems very, very competent and a very, very smart fellow, so you would not think that he would do something like that. 
And it's just a matter of, is his family loyalty so high that even though he knows his brother isn't the most confident that, but it is his brother, so his brother should do this thing. So I just don't know if that's the angle that they're going for. It doesn't make sense. One other thing before we move on, this episode also features my favorite line of the entire story. And that's where the doctor is talking about Doc Holliday. He says, he gave me a gun. He extracted my tooth. Goodness gracious me, what more do you want? (laughs) I love that line so much. (laughs) So much. That line's amazing. Let's move into episode four, the OK Corral, which, by the way, is the last individually named episode of Doctor Who until 2005. After this, we move into episode one, two, three. That is so sad. I'm so sad. So early on, the Doctor gets deputized by by Mr. Werp and calls him, who who calls him Pop. Oh, that did not go over well. No, no, it didn't. (laughs) All right, so at at this point, we know how this is going to go. So, Don, you've already alluded to this. This has the same tonal shift that the Myth Makers had. We've had some wonderful comedy, and this is all about to go south. I thought the atmosphere building in this one was really, really good. You know, I, you, you could tell this was about to go south. Yeah, it really feels like it's, it's building up to something. Before we talk much further, Riley, episode three, song count. Oh, that's right. Thank you. The song count for episode three was uh, eight. Thank you. What I found interesting about the buildup, and actually just some other things in general, is there was a few times when individuals would go to the other group and say something, and I find it... Interesting that each group had some sort of code that was, well, while this person is alone, we're not going to kill them. So that was just an interesting thing because with this kind of buildup and, you know, potentially everyone wanting to kill everybody, it seemed interesting that when they were alone that they just didn't go around shooting people. It's almost like, you know, you think of, of war in the medieval period where, you know, that kind of say, okay, we'll, we'll line up at about 11am and you know, we'll wait for the signal before we start killing each other. <laughs> All very civilized. Very civilized. Which is why I find it interesting that they have that kind of code of conduct where we're not going to shoot the messenger, basically. But I am willing to be behind this group when you actually start the shooting and I will kill him from behind. You go from one where it's like, oh, well, we're, we'll hold up this code, but not this other code. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not going to question the morality of the Clantons. It's it's definitely a little weird. What? They're attacking us from behind? That's not very sporting of them. What what, dear chap? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd like to point out that the... I did a little research, because like I said earlier, I wasn't really aware of, you know, the... why this particular event in history was considered history um and what i came across i thought it was so interesting was that the actual historians claim that the actual gunfight lasted 30 seconds the gunfight in this episode lasts three minutes now obviously that's that you know you have to add the drama and stuff like that that's totally fine but just wanted to throw that out there it was a very well directed three minutes it was fine you know, I mean, it was it was your. I, I feel like it was your standard, you know, TV western, you know, shootout that you had to have the 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 fall off of like a tall 
Ariel after getting shot and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, but I think the thing to keep in mind is it's made by people who weren't regulars on Western shows. So they were they were purely imitating a different art form, and they did it really well. Speaking of the gunfight, did anyone else think that, you know, in another life that maybe the Clantons were stormtroopers? <laughs> maybe? <laughs> oh, my goodness. They're just shooting at the Earps as they calmly walk towards them and they, they somehow manage to miss very slow-moving targets. So one, the Earps, they have trained a lot more for this, I would assume, being the marshal and sheriff and all that kind of stuff. The Clintons are running high on, you know, a lot of adrenaline. Like the, I think one of their brothers had been killed way, even before the first episode and they just don't seem too bright. So <laughs> a part of me is not super surprised that that's the fact, but yeah. And that's why they went to Ringo because they knew that they couldn't do it without him because they're yeah. terrible. Couldn't <laughs> do it with him either. <laughs> I mean, you de- you definitely get the impression that that Park Lantern was uh, was panicking once he realized Doc Holliday had shown back up. So it wasn't just the Clantons versus the Earps; they had a little bit of help. Yep. So that was uh, a shot to his confidence, for want of a better term. Yeah, and who knows? The Earps' weapons could have just been better. No, maybe that, that their weapons were just not good and wouldn't shoot straight. One thing I really did love in in the fight was how calmly and coldly holiday gun down ringo it was brutal well it's it's not like he was the first person that he's killed that's true i think it was i think it was more of the depiction of how it was depicted on on the screen that anthony is referring to i kind of noticed that as well that it was um usually things are kind of overblown or dramatic but that felt very personal that that particular uh gunning down of ringo well yeah because he was after kate and I, I think there was, you know, an element of, I don't know if this was what was intended, but it came across to me that there was an element of, you know, Ringo was a former lover of Kate. So Holiday sees that as some, you know, a potential rival getting into the whole kind of masculinity angle. So that I think there was yeah. something there on that as well. With that out the way, we end the story. Earth is, is no longer on a lawman. Holiday's on the wanted list, and um, we have Dodo, who, despite everything, decides she doesn't want to leave. Crazy, crazy bitch. And I'm sure she'll be around for a long time to come. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd gone most of this episode without heavily criticizing her. She flirted with being competent occasionally. (laughs) Uh, What could have been? Song cue count for episode four is eight. Which brings our total song cue count for the entire serial to be 32, which puts our total runtime is around 94 minutes. So it's the song plays on average once every three minutes. Thank you, Riley. And like the last few stories, we again end on a leading scene into the next story. We, we, we get the impression that we're in the future, an age of peace and prosperity in the words of the Doctor. And then we see a caveman on the scanner. I guess the doctor just wasn't checking for a little bit longer, but he's really, really bad at knowing when and where they are. (laughs) Yeah. Very true. We'll find out more on that next time. We will move on to our metrics, uh, other than the song count, which was a one-off for this. Uh, So the camp count. Quite a lot of camp in this one, I thought. I'm having a hard time pulling 
a camp character. I mean, other than like, yeah, like over the top accents, which could be, you know, placed upon so many of the people in the episode. So yeah, I didn't think it was that camp. It was just sticking with the genre. Okay, that's fair. Do we want to give it a one because some of the characters were a little over the top? I think that's fair. Sure. I mean, you could probably give it a, a point five for Steven's shirt. <laughs> All right, one point five. The ex- I'll explain later. Count anything? Sadly, no. No. Nope. No. So that brings us on to our final scores for the story. Don, you get to start this week. <laughs> it's gonna be rough. I'm gonna have to set a tone here. Whenever we give scores here, I think there's really two elements to keep in mind. One is how well they executed on their concept or idea. And the other is how much we enjoyed actually watching the story. Going into this, my expectations were pretty low because I had I had heard the common wisdom and I had especially heard Riley's thoughts on it. And for the most part, I really disagree. I enjoyed this serial. It's it's not the worst episode of Doctor Who I've ever seen. It's, it's not even the worst episode I've seen this season. Um, the song, the first couple times, it's a little weird, but you kind of get used to it. At least they're using different lyrics and commenting on what's going on in a different way every time. I found myself enjoying it, and for that, I'm giving it eight frilly shirts out of ten. Eight. Wow. Eight. Okay. Julie. I actually enjoyed it again i feel like i it helps that i enjoy westerns uh and am familiar with some of the pieces of the okay corral and having seen tombstone kind of helps with that whatever his opinions on that movie i don't really care i enjoy it there's just a few things uh that i think pull it down for me and one is that i don't really find it a good doctor who story uh again kind of the not a lot happens in relation to the doctor and the companions other than the first two episodes with him being a mistaken character which is phenomenal so uh, i'm going to probably give it 7.5 giant teeth signs out of 10 <laughs> <laughs> all right riley over to you I'll put my. Bi- I've already mentioned my biases already. I, I I'm not a big fan of westerns. I there are some westerns that I like, but I feel like there was potential here. Like I said at the very beginning, I like the the comedy. I like this idea of like the doctor being thrown in a completely unusual situation where he kind of is like bluffing his way through it, and it's he's having to do something that he feels uncomfortable doing, like holding a gun. I think that's really really funny and enjoyable. And then it just kind of like drags into like a very generic western where. The doctor doesn't do any doctoring. Steven and Dodo are just there. You could have like replaced it. You, it's like you, you didn't really have a Doctor Who episode over the last two episodes. It just became generic Western television show that, I don't know, just really kind of bores me. We've already talked about the musical cues, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'm, like I said, just not a fan of it. Don't really like it. I, I understand what, you know, Don's point of view. And I think that's very, very good. Like there's, episodes which i know aren't good but i enjoy them because of like the effort or they try and they do try here but i just feel like the execution is really bad and I- i'm sorry i, I- i'm gonna apologize but I'm gonna-, I'm gonna give this uh three no 
two music cues out of a bajillion. So, sorry. Wow. Riley, that is your lowest score to date for anything. It has to be. It's the episode I like the least. Fair enough. From my perspective, Don, you already talked about execution versus the story itself. And I'm in agreement. This story is so well executed. The sets are beautiful. The direction is extremely competent. The costumes are great. The accents air, but I'll let that go because this is a 1960s BBC production of a Western. You know, much as I might have railed against the accents, you don't expect them to be good. I didn't hate the song. I actually thought it worked quite well at times. Uh, the only criticism I have of it is the same ones that, that Julie and Riley both put forward around the Doctor and, and team not really having that much sway on events. You know, it's, it's the common complaint about historicals. These have to march to a certain conclusion, so that takes away some of the tension. For me, this is, a, this is seven and a half barmen crouching behind a bar. <laughs> which gives us a story average across the four of us of 6.25, which, which actually is exactly the same as the Celestial Toymaker. And Riley, incidentally, if you had rated it more in line with the rest of us, this would have actually been the best rated story so far this season. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to point out I'm not alone on this. There are other people that feel this way <laughs> about this episode. You know, I, I think... You received wisdom in fandom is that this was not a good story. And we've we've shown at times that we are diametrically opposed to that. So, you know, we none of us particularly enjoyed the massacre and, and received fandom wisdom would say that that's one of the best of all time. So, you know, Riley, you, you, there are times we're going to agree with fan uh, wisdom and other times that we don't. And Riley, with this one, you're in agreement and and the rest of us are not. And that's fine. That brings us to the end of our discussion on the gunfighters. We'll be back next time where we'll, when we take on a story about class warfare and the detrimental effect of technology on society. Yes, it's another one that your kids will love. It's the savages. <laughs> In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are still available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. And as a reminder, you can email us at watches4d at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Flirting with Competence, was recorded on Wednesday the 15th of January 2020. And always remember, if you enjoy trolling Riley as much as the other three of us do, bring the story up to him at every possible moment.